The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, it is a, a, another great joy that we have to open up the Word of God. Uh, um, Sundays, the reason that we come here is to magnify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And on many Sundays when we, when we gather for preaching of God's Word, there, there are certain aspects of the Christian life that we might discuss. There are certain doctrines that we might take up that are important to our church. But in the background of all of the doctrines and all the message that we preach, we do know that there is the Lord Jesus Christ. That everything that we do here is for Him. But it's really good for us to have a time like Christmas and also a time like Easter that when we begin to preach the messages that we want to specifically focus on Christ and speak of His person and speak of His work that is so critical to our salvation. Every song that we sing, every message that we bring, every doctrine that we preach, we, we do know that the Lord Jesus Christ in the, is in the background of all of it. And so there are so good times that we can come together and speak specifically about Jesus Christ and what he's done. Now the scripture text for today's sermon is from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. So I'd like you to turn there to Isaiah chapter 42, where we see Christ revealed in the message of the prophet. And this is one of the many promises that we find in the Old Testament that a Messiah would come. The Messiah is a deliverer. He's one who has been appointed to bring salvation and peace to his people. And although Messiah is a Jewish term, we learn by reading this scripture and also learn reading the New Testament that Jesus was not just a Jewish Messiah, but that he also came to save Gentiles. And so thus we find him in the New Testament with the Greek translation of that word Messiah, the appointed one. He is the Christ. Well, before we read, let me give you a little bit of the background of the title of today's message. Uh, you might think that I'm going to speak on... Um, one of my favorite topics, which would be the doctrine of election. I love to talk about how God has chosen his people before the foundation of the world. I, I like to speak about God's electing grace and choosing a people for himself, and he chose them because they would not choose him. I, I like to talk about how God in his sovereign grace has brought us salvation, then he expends all efforts in his grace to make sure that we come to repentance and faith and receive the salvation that he has provided for us. And then further than that, we're, we're so thankful that he promises to bring us to our final salvation, and that is our glorification in heaven. So the salvation and election of God's people, that's a wonderful topic, but that's not the focus of the message today. But rather, this is about another election. It's another choice, another selection that God has made. And that's the choice of God's own Son to be the Redeemer of man. Now, several weeks ago, I, I had this exciting trip on a Navy destroyer. And I was able to travel from Hawaii to San Diego on this impressive vessel that is uh, just a demonstrates really the power of the greatest navy in the world. 
Uh, I'm thankful to have my son Nathan with us today in his uniform. Uh, he's here on Christmas vacation from the Navy. But that was a very impressive trip that I went on. And for any of you that might contemplate a journey like that, you have to be aware of this, that a Navy destroyer is not a cruise ship. It doesn't have staterooms and there aren't any swimming pools on it. There aren't any endless buffets of gourmet food. But it's, you know, just after a few days of traveling on that ship, you quickly see how that life can become very mundane for sailors that have to spend even months at a time out there on many, many thousands of square miles of of an endless ocean, it seems. But here was a trip that was made to accommodate families, and so they wanted us to see what it's like for the life of a sailor. And so they had to modify things just a bit. Now, my granddaughter, Elisa, accompanied me on this trip, and you can imagine that tours of the engine room and weapons demonstrations, those aren't really the things that eight-year-old girls are very much interested in. And so they had to just provide a little bit different type of entertainment and something for them to do. So they had a lot of movies that they could watch. And one of the ones that my granddaughter, Elisa, really likes is the movie Frozen. And so one night we sat in an, in a, in an office with a, with a petty officer and a lieutenant watching the movie Frozen. And when I started thinking about a, a Christmas sermon... I was doing a little bit of research and trying to figure out what I was going to preach the message on. And I I was just looking at different places and I came across a church that had a a kids program that was called Chosen. And uh, it was based on this scripture here in Isaiah chapter 42 and I thought that was a really good idea. And I have no idea what they were going to say about it. I have no idea what their, what their program would, would, what they would show in that program. But I did like the idea. And so I thought that I would like to develop a message around that, around this word chosen that we find in Isaiah chapter 42. So the title of the message today is chosen, not frozen. And, and it doesn't, refer to our election in Christ, but it refers to the election of Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world. Now, just as an aside, uh, probably the closest that we're going to get to our election in Christ is that we often have to remind ourselves that we are sometimes the frozen chosen. That is, we don't often tell people about the Lord Jesus. We sit here in the pew with our mouths frozen shut And we don't tell people about the salvation that we have in Christ. And we need to remember that's something that we must do. Jesus Christ came to give his life an offering for the salvation of people. And we need to tell people that's what he came to do. So we need to thaw out a bit. Thaw out a bit and speak for Christ. Now with that, let's go to our text here in Isaiah chapter 42. And I want to read the first seven verses. I'm going to let you sit down today and facilitate things a little bit. Isaiah 42, verse number 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. 
Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, the spirit of them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and will give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Now, as we begin this message today, let me just give you a little bit of background of the chapter. Now, if you look back in chapter 41 and verse number 28, the scripture says, For I beheld, and there was no man even among them, and there was no counselor that when I asked of them could answer a word. Behold, they are all vanity, their works are nothing, their molten images are wind and confusion. The background is idolatry in Israel. This was 700 years before the birth of Christ, and it was a time of idolatry. The prophet Isaiah was sent to these people to preach to them a message of repentance and tell them to turn back to the one true living God. Now in chapter 41, God said that it's foolishness to worship idols. It's foolishness to listen to the false prophets of these idols because these gods have no power. They're not able to help you. There is no demonstration that they're even real. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, who wrote many, many years later, these are nothing but dumb idols. And Isaiah 41, 28 and 29 is God's assessment of the very best that the world has to offer. And not only in Isaiah's time, but also in our time, there isn't any man anywhere that's able to cure our spiritual darkness. There is no idol, there is no prophet of an idol that can do what God does. There's none of them that has the power to make any of their prophecies come true. And this is what God said there in the 26th verse of verse number 41. They have no power to do this. And so God surveyed the wicked landscape and he saw that there was none to help. And if God did not step in himself and provide a savior for them, they were doomed to die the same death of all the heathen nations that were around them. And so he looked at Israel and he saw there is no one who is capable of being the Messiah. And I might just remind you of this, that God still looks at the world today and he sees that there is no help here. That God is not distant and unconcerned about what happens in the world today, but he looks at us and he says there is no help for us. There is no no help in all of the world's religions for the problem that we have. And so he sees the the violence of Islam, there is no help there. And he sees the atheism of communism, and there is no help there. He sees the mysticism of Eastern religions, and there is no help. And many of them are not even yet convinced that we actually do exist. He sees all of that. And he sees corrupt Christianity with its charismatic movement and its word of faith preachers and billions of people that practice the idolatry of Catholicism, and he sees that there is no help. And then he sees America that touts itself to be the best hope for an enlightened world. But when he looks at us, he doesn't see anything but materialism and humanism and this insane teaching of evolution. 
And he sees people that have actually gone and embraced the subnatural, that people have even sunk below the level of animals, satisfying every purient desire that they have in their homosexuality, and their pornography, and their legalized drug use, and the murder of the innocent, and then also, even now, a, a proclivity towards euthanasia. And just to show you how wicked that the world has become, it's interesting that God gave a law. That he said that if a man lies with a beast, he shall be killed. And that is the very same law that he gave for a man who lies with a man. So God looks at that and he sees there is none among us that can help us us in this hopeless condition. We increase our technology to make our lives easier, but in our wickedness we take away the life that we have. Well, that's the world that God looks at today. And it might interest you to know that he looked at Israel and saw the same kinds of sins. That man, in this so-called evolution of thousands of years, we have not changed from what we ever were. We continue to grow worse. And so he looked at Israel. There are people that caused their children to die in the fires of heathen sacrifices. He found there in the temple that there were prostitutes, both men and women. In Israel, he found there was a land of sodomites. He saw Israel constantly at war and always threatened. And the nation had nothing at all to offer. And there was no reason why God should not abandon them upon the garbage heap of their own depravity. That was 2,700 years ago at this time in Israel's history. In the previous 3,000 years, there was never a man that had risen that could lift the world out of the evil morass. And so you fast forward 700 years from this text, and it was only worse. Israel was monotheistic. There weren't any statues, any idols in the land. But what they had done is they had changed to another form of idolatry, and that was the idolatry of self-righteousness. And that is just as idiotic as worshiping an idol. And that's the world that God saw at the first century A.D. And it seemed that God had abandoned everyone. He hadn't spoken for 400 years. There was no prophet. There was no Isaiah. There was no Jeremiah. There was no David and no Ezekiel. There was no prophet to sound the alarm and speak a message for God. Was the world lost forever? Was it without hope? Would God have an answer for the dying world? Well, God surveyed the nation again, and still he saw there was nothing there. And it was at this exceedingly bleak time, at the world's worst moment, that God gave the answer. Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Isaiah 42 is God's promise to give the answer in Galatians chapter 4. That's the prophetic word that underlies Matthew chapters 1 and 2. This is the word that underlies Luke chapter 2. This is God's answer for the hopelessness of a world that's dying in sin and headed to the eternity of hell. And that great promise is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now incidentally, Isaiah 42 is one of four servant passages in this book. This is followed by Isaiah 49, then Isaiah 50, 
finally to that passage that's a marvelous passage that's more familiar to you and that's Isaiah 52:13 through Isaiah 53 verse number 12 and that last one is about the sorrow the pain and the suffering of the servant now as we look at this text I want you to notice the first phrase of verse number 5 thus saith God the Lord and that identifies for us the speaker he is the Lord God the Hebrew word in this text is L-A-L-E-L-A-L, which is the Bible's most powerfully descriptive term for God that we find in the Old Testament. This is God the Almighty, the strongest one, the God who is above all other gods. Now we know that all of the Bible was spoken by God, but there are some particular parts where God Almighty speaks and he wants us to pay very, very close attention. This is one of those places where God has something very, very important to say. In verse number 1, he began by saying, Behold. And I don't know that I can express the full intent of that word. Jesus used that word. In the New Testament we find the word. It's the word behold. And it means to look intently. It means to turn all of your attention to this. Put everything aside and gaze upon this one that God presents. And isn't that really the, the substance of the entire Christian life? Isn't that the same of which all of the Christian life consists? That we are to look to Jesus and always to Jesus? Didn't Peter say, for me to live is Christ? And John the Baptist said, behold, behold the Lamb. Hebrews says, looking, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And there, that, that, that sucks it all in. That takes everything in. Look at this one who's the beginning and the end. Look at the one who's the alpha and omega. Everything in between. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so our Christian life begins with this open-faced view of Jesus Christ. And it never stops beholding Him in His glory. It never stops looking to Him, beholding Him in the glories of heaven. And as we look to Him, our lives are changed. We see His nature and His character. And by looking at Him, we begin to grow in Him. And then when it comes to the hour of our death, we're like Stephen who look up in, who looked up into the heavens and there he saw heaven open and Jesus Christ standing on the right hand of God. And then we're going to be transformed completely into the image of Christ. Now if we follow God's instructions, what do we see? What is there that we see in Jesus? Why does God say, behold him? Well, today I want to talk about Jesus and our focus is on the one who came to this earth in a very bleak time. He's the one that we are to behold. And still, we can look to him today. Now, what do you see when you look at him? Well, the text has quite a lot to say about it. You see his life's work here. You actually see his eternal life's work. And this is really something that's just fascinating, truly fascinating about the things of God, that when you look at men, all that you can see is a limited lifetime. There's only so much that a person can do in a limited lifetime. With the greatest of men and the things that they do, they don't really have a lasting impact on the world. And so we look sometimes at men and we say, oh, if only this person could have lived for just a little bit longer. Think of all the good that they could do for the world if they could just live a little bit longer. 
But they don't live longer and they can't live longer. And that's what makes Jesus worth beholding because he's the one who has the power of an endless life. He's not transient like Muhammad. He's not temporary like the idols that men worship. We read the Bible and we look today and we say, where is Chemosh? Where is? Where is Molech? Where is Baal? Where is Jupiter, the god of the Romans? Well, they're just figments of man's imagination. They come and they go. One idol comes, another idol goes. It comes, it goes. And there's only one that the Bible says is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that is Jesus Christ. And that gives you a pretty good idea why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And so despite what the celebrities say, and despite what the president says, that all ways are equal ways, that's not what God says. Jesus is the only way that proved, the only one who proved that he is the way. The only one who proved what he said. So the passage says, behold Christ. Now at Christmas, most people want to behold Christ in a manger. They like to see him as a defenseless baby. They want the little baby that they can pick up and hold and think that they can mold him into their image and do with him what they want. But the Bible puts very little emphasis on the Christ of the manger. Neither Mark or John even mention his birth. Both Matthew and Luke move away from the birth and the childhood of Jesus with lightning speed and they turn to him as a man, as the sovereign Lord in his ministry. And so it's passing strange that people will we'll never think of Christ until it comes to Christmas. That churches are filled at Christmas, choirs sing at Christmas, massive productions are made about Christmas. But if all that you ever do is to look at Christ in the manger, you really don't know Christ at all. Now Jesus commanded the church to remember his death. We have two ordinances for that. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. But we have no ordinance to remember his birth. But as we look at this scripture, and we see what God has to say about him, there's much about the Savior. All of this that I've said thus far is introduction. And so I'm not going to finish the message this morning. You you won't stay with me that long to let me finish. So I'm going to take this sermon into the evening message, and you'll pardon me for that, but I believe that all day Sunday is the Lord's day. So what does this passage say about Jesus? What, What are we... To see when we behold him. Well first, God says, behold my servant. I don't suppose the scripture could have started in a more confusing way than for him to say, behold my servant. Now remember the backdrop of the passage is idolatry in Israel. There was this tendency to rely on these non-existent powers. And so we would expect that as we enter into chapter 42 that God would say something like, Behold the sovereign. Behold the ruler. Behold the mighty king. Because if anyone's going to lift Israel out of the problems that they have, isn't it a sovereign, ruling, mighty king? But the passage doesn't begin that way. It begins, Behold my servant. And that's an interesting way of describing him. If it had said, behold the servant, that, that would have been enough, uh, fascinating enough. But he says, behold my servant. And the word servant actually means a bond slave. And this means that Christ the Messiah was totally devoted to the work of the Father. 
The slave doesn't have his own agenda. The slave works for the master and he does exactly what the master tells him to do. And a slave doesn't concern himself with the difficulty of his task. The master doesn't care about how hard it is to do. He just wants it to be done. And so many slaves are told what to do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they want to do what they're told to do. They have to do it. It doesn't matter how hard it is. They're caught. They can't do otherwise. But Jesus was not that kind of a servant. He was completely dedicated to the work of the Father. There was a mission given him to do. And he must complete the Father's work. And he's called a servant of God. And he's called attention to as a servant to show us there is much work to be done. And when Jesus appeared in the darkness of the first century, there was a huge mess to clean up. In Elijah's time, the scripture says that there were 7,000 that had not bowed their knees to the image of Baal. But when Jesus came, there were far fewer in Israel that were not engulfed in that idolatry of self-righteousness. And it was so bad that the most commendable expression of faith in the New Testament was not what was found among the Jewish people, but what Jesus had to say about a Roman centurion. He said about him, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Oh, you have to understand how much that Jews hated Gentiles to comprehend how grating that that statement was. There was no Jew that thought that his faith was inferior to a Gentile. But this self-assessment as the children of God was their real problem. They were devoid of any real faith. And that's the mess that this servant, Jesus, had to clean up. Judaism then was not the Judaism of Jesus Christ, much like Christianity today is not the Christianity of Jesus Christ. And this was the mission. He was a servant who claimed to clean up this mess of human depravity. And in that work, he had the full support of his father. The scripture says here, Behold my servant whom I uphold. And that tells us that the power of the Godhead was in his work. And so it didn't matter the depth of the opposition against him. This mission is not going to fail. The scripture says all principalities and powers are subject to him. And there's so, so many places that I could go with this. I, I, I believe that Jesus did what was promised I believe that he accomplished his mission. He came to save people. And I don't believe in this hypothetical redemption that's preached in so many of our Baptist churches today. Christ saves all he intends to save. And he continues to do so. And his work is only complete when it ends exactly like he said it would end. That is, all the Father hath given me shall come to me. But if I go there, if I go there, I'm on our election, not his. And that's not the focus today. I want to focus on him. Now Jesus spoke of doing the Father's will because he was the perfectly obedient servant. And if I might inject here for just a moment a personal teaching point, how much are we like Christ as we are called to be the servants of God? And I think that we can evaluate that question by looking at our own prayer lives. How many times do our prayer lives start this way? Lord, what will you have me to do? And rather than being all demanding, rather than saying, God, here's what I want you to do for me, can you identify with that? 
God tells us for sure that we are to ask him for what we want. But it always comes with that caveat, if this is in your will. And do you think that God wants us to lead with this? God, this is what I want. Wouldn't he rather want us to lead as Jesus did? What will you have me to do? We can measure where we are and where we stand with God a lot of times in the way that we pray. You see, God, God gives us things that are in his will to do his will. When Jesus gave the model prayer, he started by acknowledging who is who. He said, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then he proceeded to recognize who has all power when he said, thy will be done. And do we expect that his prayers would be any different? He's a servant. He's a holy, submissive servant. He's bound to do the Father's will. So is it any wonder that he says, that God says, Behold my servant. Look at him. Look at his example. And so you have to be very careful when you pray that you don't flip the tables and you make God your servant and you become the master. Watch your prayer life and see, does it really reflect, are you truly a servant of God? And then secondly, what, what do we see when we look to Christ? Behold my selected. Behold my servant who I'm, whom I uphold, mine elect. And there we see the word elect. That is a great Bible word. He is the one that is chosen. I'd like for you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now the fundamentals class I hope will pardon me for going over some old material, but I'd like for all of you to see this. In 1 Peter, the apostle begins with that doctrine that many people want to avoid. That is the doctrine of election, our election. And then he goes on to speak of another election, which is the focus today. Now I want you to mark this important passage in your Bible. If you'll look at 1 Peter 1 verses 18 through 20, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus was foreordained. Do you know what that word means? It means he was chosen. It means he was appointed. It means God selected him. Now you can trace that back to verse number 2 and the word foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Foreordained in verse number 20 is the same as foreknowledge in verse number 2. The only difference in those is that in verse number 2, it's in the noun form, and in verse number 20, it's actually the verb form. And what we learn from that is that Christ was chosen, and then comparing that to verse number 2, we see that our election is no less sure than the election of the Savior to be the Savior of the world. And you'll pardon me for that because I can't help to comment on these things when I see that tremendous truth taught over and over in Scripture. Now going back to Isaiah 42, remember that verse number 5 identifies the speaker. God said, I have chosen him. This appointment is God's appointment. There was none of us that looked at our human condition and in our puny wisdom we said, you know what we need? We need somebody to come and clean up this mess. No, we're, we're rather like the pigs of Second Peter 
that return, the sows that return to the wallowing in the mire. We're never going to choose anybody to clean up the mess because there isn't a person in the world that does anything other than keep contributing to the mess. And so you're never going to look at your life and say, you know, I'm going to choose Jesus to clean up my life and get things right. You're not going to do it and you never will do it. And that's why God chose him. You wouldn't do it. And in his wisdom, in his infinite wisdom, he chose him because God knew what we would do. He knows who we are, that left to ourselves, that we are never going to choose Christ. And we see that because when he came, he came into the world and he started to help people. And he healed people. And he raised people from the dead. And in the face of daily miracles of controlling the weather and casting out demons, people did not choose him. And, but that's not exactly right, is it? Yes, they did choose him. They chose to crucify him. They held their election and they chose to crucify him. Luke 23 says, And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But they delivered Jesus, listen, to their will. That's your will. And friends, you wouldn't do anything differently than they did. You choose Barabbas, not Jesus. So God chose him because you wouldn't. And then notice what God adds to this. He said, I chose him. I chose him, the one in whom my soul delights. Now, do you know why God delighted in him? He delighted because he was a servant of perfect obedience. There wasn't one of God's commandments that he didn't keep. And that is extremely important for you because there's not one of God's commandments that you have kept. And if Christ failed in any commandment, then he would forfeit the ability to stand good as the perfectly righteous one who met the demands of God's law for you. You see, God had a plan. And God knew how this plan would work. And he gave salvation for this singular purpose that all of this quagmire of sin that we live in is the violation of his law. And God is just and he's not going to permit the law to be broken. There has to be punishment. And you can't get to heaven without keeping all of God's laws perfectly. One sin disqualifies you as a lawbreaker. And the only way that you're a non-lawbreaker is that God should look at your filthy record and see there are no violations. And that's what Christ did. Christ obeyed God's law perfectly and he, and he transfers his clean record to you to make up for that dirty record and he makes it his own. By faith those records are switched. That's actually what we call being justified by faith. It's also what we call the double imputation of our sin to Jesus Christ and his righteousness to us that comes by faith in him. Now, if Christ was not the perfectly obedient servant, then that scheme could never work. And this is the reason that God delighted in Christ, because he knew that he would do all of this without complaint, without a moment's hesitation, and without us asking for it, and without, without our, our contribution at a time when we were without repentance, and we were without faith, and we were without desire, when we had contempt and hatred and hostility towards him. God allowed the records to be switched 
Jesus died. He took the penalty of sin so the record could be switched. And God let you go free because Christ would not go free. And God delighted in him because he was obedient to the plan. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now God chose him because he would not let this personally, excruciatingly painful plan fail. And that's love and obedience beyond your comprehension. Love beyond what you can understand that Jesus not only loved us, but he loved his heavenly Father so much that he would not let his plan fail. And so is it any wonder that God looked at him and he said, I delight in him. On two very important occasions, God expressed his delight in him by speaking audibly from heaven. At his baptism, this is what we read, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, God the Father spoke from heaven again, and he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And where did God get those words? Right out of Isaiah chapter 42. This is my son in whom I delight. Now if you understand that, you understand why Christmas is so important. You can't pass off Christmas with little thought and be content with Jesus in the manger. No, there was a grand purpose in Christ's arrival. He came into the world in the pitch black darkness of sin. It was in the sorrow of night from which there was no recovery And by all rights, God should have let the world go. We didn't deserve for him to choose Christ. We didn't deserve for him to show an ounce of his mercy and his grace. We didn't deserve for him to become incarnate and take on the limitations of human flesh. None of that's deserved by any person. And so how could anybody conclude that God would be unjust if he chose some on which to show mercy and grace? What a pitiful misunderstanding of God. None can understand, can, can, can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? That's because he is El, E-L, the almighty God who does what he wants to do. And he says, I'm going to give my son, I've chosen my servant for you that are so undeserving. And we need to think about that at Christmas. It's only, going to, it's only four days until we come to Christmas. And for every gift that you give your child, you ought, to, you ought to be in your mind the gift that God gave to the world. God chose him because he was the servant that was willing to be given. Now the passage has so much more in it. I'm sorry I can't complete it today. Not this morning. All, all I could do is just get a start. Tonight... I'm going to come back to this. And we're going to look at this again and see what does God say about this one that we are to behold. There is just so much more that we need to see in this. You need to see Christ living beyond the manger. And if you can't come back tonight, then I hope that you at least take this part, take it to your heart, and just give God the glory, all the glory that you can for the one that God has chosen He's the elect, the chosen one, the one whom God the Father delights. And when you look at him, you'll never be dissatisfied with him. He is 
God's chosen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and there's so much in the passage that I've just said, uh, so much to say about Jesus, so many things that are outlined here as the kind of Messiah that he would be, a perfectly, perfectly willing and obedient servant. You chose him because you knew exactly what he would do. You knew, you knew him. You, you knew that perfect accord that you always had. You knew that he would fulfill his plan. You, you knew, Lord, that he would bring salvation to his people. Not one of them would be lost, exactly as he said. We thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And although I've said that we have no ordinance for his birth, he did come to the world, and he was born. And we have to talk about that because it is so important. He was born and born in exactly the way that the Scripture said that he was born. As we read the passage in Matthew 1 and 2 just a moment ago, how many times did we read that it was fulfilled according to the prophets? Lord Jesus came to do what the prophets said he would do to save his people. Thank you, Lord, for him. Open the eyes of some sinner today to see Jesus Christ, not in the manger, but lifted up on the cross of Calvary, dying for the souls of men. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org